Father, we uh, are grateful for the beautiful day that this turned out to be and for um, your blessing for us in so many ways. We thank you especially now for the opportunity to continue our study. And we pray that you'd give us attentiveness, a tender heart uh, for uh, the truths of your word and their application to our lives that we might live faithfully unto our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and honor and glorify him in this world. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, um, we have begun a two-part consideration of confessional foundations regarding the nature of temptation, sin, repentance. Uh, We looked at the foundations themselves last week, and that in three parts. We looked at the doctrine, according to our confession of faith, of corruption in general, original sin that uh, is within us. Um, We looked at corruption and the regenerate, how there is an interaction between Uh, the corrupt nature that we come into the world with in Adam and the new birth that we have in Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, corruption and the goodness of our works. How is it that one still struggling with corruption uh, can have uh, the possibility of good works? With respect to that, are there any questions this week that you'd like to raise? All right, then let's press on. We have the same uh, general topic, confessional foundations regarding the nature of temptation, sin, and repentance. Uh, But now, uh, tonight, we look to the application of these foundations uh, to our current issues. And uh, that will be overall in two parts. Uh, The latter, uh, part two, will have five subsections. First, we're going to look at the importance of concupiscence overall for the Christian life, its application, and we're going to get into that through a historical examination of the conflict between Roman Catholicism and the Reformers. Then we're going to get directly into applications uh, for same-sex attraction in part two, or B, And we're going to look at the common uh, way in which concupiscence works with respect to all sin. We're going to look at uh, continued corruption in the life of all believers. But then we're going to look at the possibility of real change for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, The um, way in which we can be grateful for this sincere efforts of those who uh, struggle with that and uh, continue to try and live faithfully unto Jesus and note in particular the moral difference between corruption and actual transgression so that we don't fall into uh, being harsh or being too loose one way or the other. So those are the things we're going to look at tonight. The Committee insists that their concern overall here is how to understand homosexual attraction in relationship to the gospel. Um, The doctrine that we've been looking at has several ways in which it applies to the experience of same-sex attraction. Um, 
And the point that they had insisted on uh, principally as that with all, as with all other disordered desires, same-sex attraction uh, is in fact truly and properly sin. But there's much more that needs to be said uh, about concupiscence. Um, and uh, under the heading importance of concupiscence, they begin that discussion. And the point they're going to try and make is that there's much more at stake in this discussion than might appear at first glance. So let's see uh, what they're trying to tell us here. Um, This is on uh, page 18, near the bottom. um, And what they say, or about the middle, I should say, uh, they begin by saying, um, what is the importance of concupiscence? Why why is it a, a critical issue? And they're going to get to that question by way of asking the historical question, why was it important to the reformers? To understand the reformers' concern, then we need to turn to uh, the Roman view as it was summarized in the Great Council of Trent from the Reformation period. And they have quoted there um, their decree on original sin. And notice in that quotation, they say that those who are baptized, uh, they uh, have concupiscence remaining, which is understood to be uh, an incentive to sin. But the point is that uh, those who are baptized are called to strive against it. And that concupiscence cannot uh, do harm to those who don't go along with it. But who those who resist, they put it, manfully by grace, uh, they shall have their efforts crowned. This concupiscence then, they notice, which the apostle sometimes calls sin, the Holy Synod declares that the Catholic Church has never understood it to be called sin as tr- being truly and properly sin in those who are born again, but because it is of sin and inclines to sin. And if anyone is of a contrary opinion, let him be anathema. In other words, let him be damned. So uh, some shocking language. Um, First of all, this business of saying uh, (laughs) plainly, the apostle sometimes calls concupiscent sin. But they say the uh, Catholic Church doesn't call it sin. Now, this may seem just utterly shocking in in such a bold statement, but you have to remember what we've already said about the word properly as it functions at this time in theology. Uh, They don't mean properly in the sense of uh, um, correct or good. They mean properly in the sense that some words have a proper or technical meaning, and some words then having those meanings nevertheless have uses that don't live up to the technical meaning. Uh, There's an improper sense to it. And thus, this claim of itself is uh, not objectionable. Reformed theology itself does the same thing with respect to some biblical terms. It insists there's a proper sense of it, 
uh, as it's to be used technically in doctrine. And then there are some improper uses of it. And you can't be confused by those improper uses. You have to uh, um, identify them as such and not have them uh, uh, affect your right understanding of doctrine. So that part's fair enough. But what we want to do is to turn from here straight away a little ahead and look at the uh, uh, statement of William Cunningham on footnote 42 to see um, what kind of a burden this claim bears in this context. In other words, what Trent is wanting to say is that there's a proper sense of the word sin when we're talking about the doctrine of sin. And then there's an improper sense, and that improper sense is the sense that Paul uses when he calls it sin in Romans, uh, say, for example, 5 through 8. And uh, therefore, Rome is not going to admit uh, those uses as part of its doctrine. Now, uh, footnote 42, 42 on page 19. We have to look at this carefully. Um and, and here's Cunningham saying, all right, if you want to make that claim, you've got an enormous burden of proof. And listen to how he puts it. Um, he says, it should require evidence of no ordinary strength and clearness to warrant anyone in maintaining that that is not truly and properly sin which the apostle so frequently calls by that name without giving any intimation that he understood it in improper or metaphorical sense. And that if there be any subject with which, with respect to which men ought to be more particularly scrupulous in departing without full warrant, from the literal, ordinary meaning of scripture statements, it is when the deviation would represent that as innocence, which God's word calls sinful. A tendency which men's darkened understandings and sinful hearts are but too apt to encourage. And the point is, Cunningham th- thinks they haven't begun to meet the burden of proof for that claim. And that's why they think Rome is so sadly mistaken on it. Let me pause there. Do you get that point? It's not that it's wrong to uh, build your doctrine on only proper uses or technical uses of a Bible term and note that there are other uses that aren't included. But when you do it, you've got an enormous burden of proof. You've got to show that, that all kinds of indications are located contextually or um, comparing scripture to scripture. And particularly on this question, you'd have that burden. Um, the, um, and, 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 and both because it is so extensively used by Paul uh, in the relevant chapters and because we know we have an inherent temptation to want to be freed from some of the burden of sin. And so we'd have a predisposition to uh, want to modify the Bible's uh, bold teaching on the subject. Any question, comment, concern about, it's a very important footnote, and I would have, if it were me, I think I'd have brought that up into the text. But in any case, um, 
thoughts, reflections on that point? All right, that's Dave, it. Can, Dave, can I just ask, um, do you think that, and this is a hard question I'm sure to answer, but do you think that Rome would consider the characterization of their view of concupiscence fairly worded in this discussion? Well, it's it is just shocking. And I know it comes from the Council of Trent, but, but um, would they have... Well, I guess I'm trying to figure out how on earth anyone really reconciles this in their in their head, given the, I mean, Cunningham's point is brilliant, but it's also doesn't seem like it's some um, shockingly innovative point. Like anybody should get that it's such a significant um deviation from such an important biblical doctrine that you would think they'd want to have really strong reason to do it. I don't know. Well, we're going to see that they they have strong reasons for doing it, but not strong reasons that are legitimate um, as we go along here. I will say that um, we need to recall that just like... Uh, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith today, there's only a very small portion of Protestant people who hold that to be a fair and accurate statement of Scripture's teaching. And uh, it, it, it may be that among Roman Catholics, Trent has even a smaller portion of adherence. <laughs> that may be a shocking thing to say, but um, uh, the uh, R- Rome has suffered in many ways uh, a liberalizing tendency with respect to her own uh, historic standards that uh, Protestants have suffered uh, in the modern period. Thank you, that's helpful. Can I ask, also, all my footnotes are one number short of yours, so or rather past, so that was footnote 43 in my version. Oh, dear. Hmm. And I just got it off the PCA website, I think. Anyway, I don't want to distract from the discussion. Yeah, I'll try and sort that out, Paul. It means I must have cut out a footnote (laughs) somehow on my text. Um, I'm working from a version of it that I have reformatted so that I can put my notes interspersed. And and maybe I somehow uh, deleted a footnote I shouldn't have. (laughs) But I'll try and sort that out, Paul. Thank, you. thank you. So when I, whenever I give my number, I need to add one to it to direct you. Is that correct? Yes, at least for my brain. All right. Yeah, and me, me too. Everybody else, yeah. All right. Thank you. I'm sorry. Well, in any case, um, so we've seen the quote. We've tried to refine what might have seemed especially shocking, uh, that they were ready to plainly say they were happy to argue with Paul. That isn't exactly what they're doing. We tried to, in fact, nuance it properly to look at their claim. But the claim still doesn't uh, stand the scrutiny that uh, Cunningham argues they'd have to uh, stand in order to vindicate their claim. So... um, 
the counsel then, the way it's phrased often, concupiscence is a result of sin, it inclines to sin, but it is not sin itself. Now, um, <clears throat> the, um, uh, uh, the reformers, on the other hand, uh, were um, absolutely determined that they were going to have a scriptural doctrine, not one that was based on tradition or uh, the, the um, declarations of councils and popes and so on. Um, and so this whole point then touches on the question of authority and tradition that were an integral part of the Reformation uh, and the the need they thought for the gospel to be retained is to have a gospel truth as defined by the scriptures, not by human experience, not by expedience, not by uh, tradition. Um, and um, so they put a very high premium on that in their theological work, and they were very much repulsed by any attempt to undermine the notion that biblical authority would reign. And the the point is that they believed um, that not just is the doctrine of sin at stake here, but the gospel itself is at stake because a mistake Rome made about the doctrine of concupiscence. Um, And we get Cunningham again, uh, at the um, uh, about the middle of p- page 19, um, he says that the scripture view you have of the fall and its effects um, have a profound influence on your whole conception of salvation and a, a, a sense of what the remedy might be. Thus, to get the disease wrong, he's arguing, you're very likely to get the uh, remedy wrong. And, in fact, Rome's view of concupiscence, he insisted, uh, led to two very serious errors in understanding the gospel. The first of them uh, is that um, the church's... uh, um, ministry, its sacraments, uh, and so on, uh, because of this view, have an exaggerated sense of their uh, ability to work. Um, And the second is that their failure on concupiscence allows them to give men and women a sense that they can actually merit the favor of God. Uh, Both of these tendencies... um, the uh, are uh, the fruit of this failure to see that concupiscence is not simply of sin, but it is sin. So let, let's see how um, Cunningham wants to try and sustain those two charges. Uh, we're on to page 20 now, and um, the committee points us to an earlier portion of the language of Trent, that preceded uh, the section we read on uh, concupiscence. So the block quote, 
if anyone denies that by grace, uh, um, the grace that's found in baptism, if anyone denies that the guilt of original sin is remitted, uh, that has it, that it has its true and proper nature of sin, uh, not taken away, but it's only not imputed, then he is anathema. For they say, those who are born again, God hates nothing because there's no condemnation for those who are truly buried, uh, that once you're baptized, original sin is not something for which you can perish. You're completely innocent. And there's nothing that if you uh, were to continue to live with that concupiscence, but not simply fall into deliberate acts with respect to it, there'd be nothing whatsoever that would keep you from uh, making your way to heaven. Um, the, um, the footnote, uh, this would be 44, uh, is interesting. In this, uh, they bring up Calvin, who made the charge, and I can't take the time to explain it fully, but for those who have ears to hear, let them hear, that Rome's view of concupiscence ends up doing the same thing with original sin in the regenerate that Pelagians did with original sin in everyone. Uh, that is a striking observation, and I think a sound observation. Um, so then, the point is this. Um, the reformers saw in Rome's understanding of concupiscence a gospel-destroying shift from the imputation of Christ's righteousness to a confidence in our own righteousness. Uh, they have in view not um, a righteousness that is imputed and alien, but a righteousness that is infused and inherent in the believer himself. Uh, and this struck at the heart of the gospel um, as far as the reformers were concerned. Um, the, um, so uh, they, the reformers stressed that the ongoing presence of sinful concupiscence is precisely the reason why the righteousness that is that is the justifying declaration is not our righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness alone imputed to us. That's the first point then that undermines the gospel so profoundly. Uh, the supposition that baptism removes original sin completely, and that being removed even though concupiscence remains, you could live perfectly purely. Uh, and when you don't do it, you need the help of the sacraments to overcome the problem, and that's the second tendency. Uh, it exaggerates the power of the rights of the church to deal with the Christian life. Uh, and so the sacramental system would be there to remedy any failures, any sins after original sin had been completely removed. Um, the Christian after baptism is innocent and pure. Um, the only sin that remains possible for him is actual sin. 
And when that comes about, it's through the sacrament of penance by which guilt is taken away. Um, So these two dangers uh, of the Roman view of concupiscence struck at the very heart of the gospel and the Christian life. Um, You had at the bottom of page 20 uh, a view that daily Christian life would be characterized by, and over to 21, weakened awareness of one's constant need for the grace and righteousness of Christ as opposed to the grace administered through the sacramental system of the church. Um, Well, and the point they make here then on to 21 is this is not irrelevant to us, although it's important for us to understand the implications of uh, concupiscence with respect to the question of homosexuality. The, the correct doctrine of concupiscence goes far beyond that more narrow question. And um, uh, therefore, it ought to be of interest uh, to every Christian that um, it uh, be understood rightly and it be upheld. Uh, but with that in mind, then, they're prepared to move on to the application of this doctrine to same-sex attraction. All right, let me pause there for a moment. And uh, I know that's a a heavy uh, dose to jump into straight away. Um, But um, I think the the, uh, report's language is clear, and I've tried to even clarify it further and draw your attention to the Uh, logic of it in particular parts, which I think is especially clear. Uh, Questions? Yeah, Dave, this is Steve. Yes. Um, So you answered one of my questions. When we were reading this over the weekend, uh, we were talking, Esther and I were talking, and it was, so this sounds very much like like there's a strain of at least theoretical perfectionism in, in Catholic theology, which I guess I hadn't realized, that that at least it's theoretically possible to to live a perfect life and not sin right and that's what the saints do eventually yeah so so i guess other than than other than saints i mean in in, in terms of practicality do catholics actually believe i mean i i have no idea they believe believe that or well the point is they all know very well that nobody can uh, in in experience, whatever the theory is, and that's what gives Rome such power, because it's only then, through the administration of the sacraments, that you can be saved. You, you you've lost your shot at it through the grace of baptism that purifies you from original sin, and the only thing that you can do now is be involved in the sacramental system in order to experience. Uh, uh, cleansing and forgiveness. So, so it, 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 I was also thinking that this is not all that different, in some ways, than than Islam, where where the burden is all upon the the faithful Muslim to to do everything he can to get to to get to heaven, and it's all there, there's no grace. It's all about his his own works and efforts and. and it seems like there's at least some similarities there. There is. Now, remember the Calvin's point. Uh, what Pelagianism did with original sin was uh, say that everybody's innocent when they start the game. 
and Rome did condemn Pelagianism. Uh, but what they've done is they've just backed this up to um, a Pelagianism, as it were, with respect to the baptized. Um, and what follows is that, yes, you can buy your works and must buy your works, contribute to your salvation. Yeah. The, grace is there, and you don't have that in Islam, but it's an attenuated grace profoundly. Um, Dave, yeah. Um, do you have time for another question? Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, this connects so well to last week, and just that was uh, your in this statement and our discussion um, about being born dead in trespass and sin. And that we find we have tendencies that we've, we, how did you put it, that, um, that we, we've had since birth, because we were born dead in trespass and right. sin, we just think that's who we are and what we are, because we've sinned from the beginning. Right. And we have that sin from right. the beginning. right. And it really, spiritually, is so helpful in sorting through that in one's own life. And then, just as you've been talking this week, it just seems um, what's coming to mind are principles of um, child-rearing. And I remember that you were, I mean, we... We didn't give our kids rewards for things they just should have done. Like, if you clean your room, I'll, you know, every little thing, there was a reward, which would be kind of like, if you're good, you're going to merit our favor. If you, if you don't do what's good, then you're not going to make it kind of thing. Right, right, right. But also... Viewing children that way, and you know, Dr. Gershner had that phrase that was sort of offensive to everyone. He would say, You know, you've got a little viper there, <laughs> right? Remember? Yes, right. And um, people were like, What? They're so cute, they're these little <laughs> babies, they're innocent children. And to treat a child that way is destructive to that child, but you don't, you don't, um. Well, that's not the only thing that's true of them. They are right. little vipers, but they're also created in the image of God. Right. And, and that's the dynamic. But in the correction of children, the importance of that correction is that a parent can miss, if they don't know this, and a child acts in a certain way, they think that's the way that child is born. We have to, ch that's what's going on now in our society. Right, as you opposed to... But you don't feel like you're a male. Something's desperately wrong there. Yeah, as opposed to coming to a conviction of sin and repenting right. of that sin. Right. And that's a terrible thing. It leaves people in bondage. Right. Good point. And, and then a pastor's wife we knew way back when. 
her son had played with a neighbor, and she was so so offended that her son had sinned in some way. I can't remember what it was. And she said, he would have never done that if he hadn't been with him. <laughs> and we were like, no, that's not really true. You right. Right. Anyway. Thank you. Very good. All right. We come to application. Uh, the application of what we've been talking about, the same-sex tra- attraction. Uh, and the first point is the common working of concupiscence with respect to all sin. And they want to they drive this home because it's so important in so many different ways. Uh, the, the power we feel of spontaneous sinful desire um, belongs to every one of us who have remaining sin, uh, a corrupt nature remaining. It's not unique to homosexual desire. And um, there are many Christians who maybe don't get that and don't realize that this is something that we all share in. Um, And they notice the danger straight away that some might be tempted to think that um, the particular character of the disordered homosexual, same-sexual desire is qualitatively different from uh, my own uh, disordered desires. Qualitatively different. It's it's something far worse. Or, or on the other hand, um, they uh, might be um, willing to assert the sinfulness of one category of spontaneous desire, but minimize it or remain largely uh, um, ignorant of it so far as everyone is subject to it. Both of these would be grave errors with respect to the Christian life. The fact is that when we think of ourselves rightly and pay attention to our inner life, we know that we are, they say, more alike than different. Uh, There's not a Christian who is self-conscious properly at all that isn't aware that they have areas of sin that they struggle with that arise spontaneously. uh, And though they may have had success in uh, keeping it from breaking outwardly, uh, it continues to trouble them incessantly and uninvited. Um, The... uh, and furthermore, they notice that uh, this isn't just a matter of um, sins of commission that seem to burst out on us, but they notice this is even true with respect to sins of omission. That is to say, concupiscence leads us also to have a spontaneous feeling uh, which is not appreciative of the good and the calling to glorify God the way it should. It, should be a matter of delight to us, and we're uh, somewhat indifferent. And this, so, so too, the sin of omission with respect to uh, feeling evil be as repulsive as it is uh, properly. Um, they conclude this section by saying that reform teaching places us all on an equal footing in our need of Christ's imputed righteousness. That's at the bottom of page 21. So there's the first section that we all, in studying this subject, need to realize the significance 
of the doctrine of concupiscence with our battle against sin and not suppose that it especially belongs to those who struggle with same-sex attraction. For the sake of time, I'm going to press on unless somebody stops me, but don't hesitate to stop me if you if you need me to, all right? I'm just not going to leave the longer pauses in there. But any time along the way, you put your fake hand up or your real hand up and uh, I'll stop. But um, on page 22 then, the application is concerning the continued corruption that we find in the life of all believers. Um the, we shouldn't be surprised, they say, but expect that concupiscence in general uh, would continue in the life of the believer. Um, the corruption remains in the language of the confession in every part. Um, and we should not communicate to a believer with a history of same-sex attraction that this ex- the expectation is if they're a believer, it will simply disappear. Um, now, note the footnote here, and I guess this must be for you all, footnote 48. Um, they want to make it clear. There are many who might say, amen, but to that last sentence, uh, that is that the same-sex attracted can have the expectation that this will simply disappear. But on the grounds that it's an indelible part of their personhood indelible, meaning you can't take it away. It's integral. It's uh, fixed. It's immutable. Um, And the committee is saying it is not based on that at all. Um, Rather, it's grounded in the scripture's picture of the Christian life as a battle between flesh and the spirit. And and they ask them, okay, why is that important? And there are two things that have characterized uh, the experience of same-sex attraction in relationship to the church. It's not been uncommon that those who have same-sex attraction are made to feel that they can't be real Christians unless in this life they have a reversal or an eradication of their attractions. And there are two versions of this. Uh, the first is in the form of promise. There are some Christians who say uh, that um, the promise of God, if you're a genuine believer, is that you will have such sinful uh, attractions removed from you entirely. Uh, part of the healing that they think God has promised. And the committee says this is not a promise based on a full understanding of the gospel. Um, the, uh, there's no promise except the promise that God will sustain us till the end. There's no promise except that this world is going to be a world of pilgrimage, of uh, trial, of battle against sin. That's the promise of God. And that Christ will never leave us or forsake us in that battle. The second error here is that the claim of complete reversal or eradication is put not in the form of a promise, but in the form of a demand uh, that in uh, the uh, preaching 
and in the exercise of discipline, uh, it be demanded that if you're really a believer, you will uh, have that same-sex attraction disappear entirely. And there, the committee uh, is very straightforward. Uh, that demand is anti-gospel. It crushes and condemns, especially when it's applied selectively, uh, and not to every form of concupiscence. But of course, um, then they want to make sure everybody gets it here. These two things are profoundly wrong. But the remnants of corruption in this doesn't negate in any sense the call to fight against that corruption. We're in a battle, a battle that won't be won in our experience until we get to be with the Lord, a battle that is already won in principle in what Christ has accomplished for us, what he's working in us is that we're to put to death in Colossians 3, 5, put to death whatever's earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Um, the, um, the last part of this paragraph is a very important point. Um, we are taught that our sinful corruption uh, um, or excuse me, if we're taught that our sinful corruption must be entirely removed from any part of us in order to be truly repentance, it's spiritually treacherous perversion of the doctrine of repentance. Very, very important sentence. Let me read it again. However, to teach that our sinful corruption must be entirely removed from any part of us in order to be considered truly repentant, is a spiritually treacherous perversion of the doctrine of repentance. Well, questions about that point. All right, seeing none, I'm going to press on further then. Having said what they've said, Oh, Kathy, were you trying to get my attention? Please. Yes, and then I realized my light was off, so I was sitting in the dark. <laughs> uh, it's just not a question, but i just reminded of Christ's condemnation of the uh, scribes and the Pharisees for imposing burdens that they could not bear. Yes, boy, great point, Kathy. And that's exactly, I think, the subtext of what the committee's getting at. Uh, that it puts the church in a terrible position to be aligned it's with it. It's a horrible thing to do to people. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Kathy. All right. Um, so, then the third point. The possibility of real change. The committee wants to insist that our confession of faith, though it doesn't promise or demand that any part of the concupiscence that belongs to our corrupt nature be utterly eliminated. At the same time, it expects that in general and in specific instances, there will be areas where the believer does see some progress uh, toward Christ-likeness. So never eradicated in this life, 
the battle goes on, but we also have great hope and expectation uh, to, to growth in Christ-likeness. Um, the, uh, and so they're repudiating the error uh, that says that change is not possible and therefore should not be sought. Um, and that this also is a crushing error that many are teaching today with respect to uh, the, our current controversies. Uh, but they they ought to just um, uh, live with it, perhaps embrace it. Um, no, on the contrary. Uh, a person suffering from same such attraction or any other disordered desire should not close oneself off to the pursuit of and hope for real change. Um, so there's the third point. The fourth, fourth, page 23, uh, Celebrating Sincere Efforts is the subtitle. And the point is this, and uh, this is one of the wonderful things about our confession summary of the gospel. Um, those struggling with same-sex attraction, nevertheless, by faith in Christ, God is truly pleased with their sincere efforts to follow Christ because he looks upon even those imperfect deeds as covered by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now that's the point we looked at in the abstract last week, but now we're bringing it home in particular with respect to same-sex attraction. Um, that... Uh, to the end of that paragraph, in Christ every bit of progress, every moment of victory over temptation, even victory over temptation that comes from a, the sinful corruption remaining inside of us, is to be celebrated as a gift of the new life of Christ with confidence that it pleases God as such. And here I ask you to recall the statement we urged on you last week. In Christ, my sinful self is accepted as righteous in God's sight. So too, in Christ, my sincere sinful good works are accepted as righteous in God's sight. That's true for all of us with respect to all of our sin. It particularly needs to be urged that it's true with those that suffer with same-sex attraction and the sin that remains in their battle uh, to follow Christ and to live faithfully unto him. Um, we're close to the end, so let me pause and see if uh, anyone has a question on either of the two subjects we've just touched on. All right, um, the last then, uh, subtitled Moral Difference, uh, we could add to that, Moral Difference Between Corruption and Actual Transgressions, a difference that makes a great deal of difference in how we experience the battle against sin. 
Uh, and so the committee wants to insist that there's a very practical value to this distinction between the remnants of our corrupt nature and actual transgressions. And, and that because there's a significant moral difference between uh, the, the disposition to sin and the decision to act on that disposition. All of its sin, original and actual, all of it's subject to God's wrath. But further, it's important to say that it's significantly less heinous uh, to um, experience that attraction as opposed to having it break out with your thoughts resting in it and in deeds. Um, and, and that's important to say because that is a valuable movement in the right direction for which one should be grateful, uh, n- not condemning of. Um, here, they don't want to encourage same-sex attracted people to just give in. But on the other hand, there has been a tendency they say, to have an undue heaping of shame, as if the presence of homosexual attractions makes them the most heinous of sinners. Again, a very important point here. They say, our committee says, on the contrary, their experience is representative of the present life of all Christians. That's where we all are. Uh, and we're glad if though we're wrestling with those inner dispositions that they're not breaking out into sin in our lives. We're grateful for it. And the same sex attracted should be able to have the same gratitude that we all have. I love the concluding portion of this paragraph. Um, the uh, They say... We should be encouraged and challenged by the example of same-sex attracted Christians and eager to join in fellowship with them for the mutual strengthening of our faith, hope, and love. And I would add, knowing that we're all in the same battle on this. But the idea that same-sex attracted Christians can be an example to us and a a crucial part of our fellowship in the battle we all share against sin. Uh, And quote powerfully from John Owen there in his uh, wonderful work, The Mortification of Sin and Believers. Well, let me stop there while we have a, a few minutes and see uh, now if there's questions, comments, uh, discussion, things you'd like to raise uh, about anything that the committee has said or that I've said um, in our conversation tonight. While you're thinking, uh, next week we change into a new section of the report entitled Biblical Perspectives uh, for Pastoral Care. 
And there's three parts to that section, uh, and we'll take them up individually. The first part is on discipleship. But um, any... uh, While I'm waiting, I I did come across a very uh, helpful uh, article. Uh, We we had touched briefly on... uh, uh, gender dysphoria last week and um, I came across uh, a wonderful um, piece uh, in the Gospel Coalition's um, magazine Themelios reviewing a book on this subject that I thought I would put that in the chat for you and I should be able to do it successfully <laughs> after uh uh, learning more about what I need to do to accomplish that last week. So let me see. I'm going to everyone. There's the thing. And then, all right. So I sent it to everyone, and everyone should have that link. Um, I hope. So, anyone, a comment, a question, a concern? Um, do you have any sense about how this report is being received by um, the important segments of the PCA that, that, that are thinking through these matters? Um, the, uh, I have only seen one uh, um, public. I, I, I haven't seen anyone review it or respond to it, but I haven't been really looking either. Uh, but I will say that um, uh, at least one presbytery, uh, you probably don't remember all of my introductory remarks, but um, the um, you remember I said that the peculiar thing is that the report comes with no recommendations at all. And uh, that um, was designed deliberately because... Uh, they wanted the report to be available, uh, but they didn't want to have a big debate at the assembly about the report. Um, and coming without recommendations means that, uh, as things stand, um, there won't be any um, debate. But um, one of the presbyteries, Calvary Presbytery, a presbytery in South Carolina, um, uh Am I still on? Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. I I just got a funny message from the computer. Uh, One of the presbyteries, Presbyterian South Carolina, Calvary Presbytery, has sent up an overture to the upcoming assembly, Overture 38, and it asked the assembly to declare the report of the Adderham Committee on Human Sexuality as a biblically faithful declaration and refer it to the Committee on Discipleship Ministries for inclusion and promotion among its denominational teaching materials. Uh, so the, the first thing to note is at least a whole presbytery thinks this is so important that they want to have, in some way or another, uh, our denominational imprimatur on it. Um, I haven't seen anything else of that character, and it does propose... <laughs> 
the overture itself poses a slight threat to the strategy uh, of the committee, uh, which is not to want to have, you know, if this report, with that recommendation, it would open up the whole report to virtually a line-by-line debate and discussion, which was, um, I think, part of what they were hoping to avoid. So uh, that may be a double-edged sword, but at least it shows that, one, Presbyterian and Calvary is a very, very uh, solid, uh, very conservative reform Presbytery. So uh, I think that bodes well from for at least uh, from uh, one wing of the church, uh, a grateful appreciation of the report. Uh, can you talk about how does the discussions of concupiscence relate to the Revoice Conference? Were they advocating for the Roman Catholic view or um, something else? I can't comment on that because that's a part of litigation right now, Austin, and I'm one of the judges supposedly litigating that. Um, but, um, but, and you, you, you can look around the internet and you'll see all kinds of claims one way or the other. Uh, and after this is over, I've got uh, about 1,200 pages I, I, I could send you to read if you wanted to. <laughs> I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, other Questions, comments. Was everybody able to get the uh, ch- the link in the chat? Anybody didn't get it? Let me ask that. Oh, so we've looks like we've solved our our problem. Well, we're coming up on the hour, um, I, but I don't want to cut anybody off if you're perplexed or. Well, thank you all again for your participation. Uh, And again, I hope it it isn't repetitive. I I feel like they move the ball forward each time a couple of yards. We get a little deeper, a little clearer understanding of what's at stake in all of this. So I hope it continues to be um, uh, helpful to you. Let me close in prayer. Father, uh, how wonderful it is that your word shines a light upon our experience that helps us to understand who we are, what our calling is in the world, and the magnificent resources that are ours in Christ, that we are acceptable in your sight through him, not in our own righteousness, but in his, and that our love for righteousness that you've put in us even that is not pure enough to be acceptable to you. So much mixed with sin is it. But in Christ, it is acceptable to you. And um, we have then the prospect of uh, your fatherly smile and not only a frown. And the delight of our Savior in us as we seek to be faithful and not merely condemnation. And we pray that that encouragement would lead us to um, continue on in the fight. And we pray for our denomination 
as we wrestle with these things. We pray for the SJC that uh, they would be able to rule uh, justly according to the evidence, but we pray that it would um, be practically profitable for the church as well. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.